I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who put the fine in fine woodworking: Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Yeah, that's right. We're pretty fine. It's uh, Wood Talk number one fifty six for November fourth, twenty thirteen. On today's show, we're talking about. You know what, Matt? When you hit the back button, did we delete all the stuff at the top <laughs> that I had written there? We're talking uh, about uh, um, uh, um, uh, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> we're right. talking about some stuff today, folks. Just go to the show notes, and you're going to see it. You will see the Let things we're talking about. Let it be a surprise for once. It's going to be yes. a surprise for me when I read it. Um, <laughs> what the heck? It just disappeared. That's great. All right, so let's get to those topics later on. Maybe I'll just re-record this later. <laughs> we'll see. We'll <laughs> see how motivated I am. Uh, but hey, before we get to all that stuff that I didn't just say, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Today's show is supported by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. Man, now I'm looking through here going, all right, crap. So what else is missing? Um, I don't see anything else missing, so I guess we're okay for now. That's because it's missing. Actually, there's a second question for Shannon that's missing. Apparently, we're only letting Shannon have one question today. Oh, man, this is going to be a fun show. All right, let's just dig into it. So what's on the bench? I'll go first. Uh, I've got some veneer on my bench that's in the process of being flattened. So I purchased some of that uh, veneer flattening solution from veneersupplies.com. And it's supposed to be better than like the home brews. I don't know if you guys ever played with this stuff, but you basically mix glycerin uh, alcohol, a little bit of glue and some water, and you can make a veneer flattening solution. And the problem with stuff like that is it tends to be, t- it takes Explosive. a long Yeah, it could be right. <laughs> uh, it takes a long time to dry and it may actually seal the wood fibers so much that if you wanted to stain it, you won't be able to stain it. And sometimes you have issues with the adhesion of various types of glue. Um, so I tried this, uh, pre-made stuff and fingers crossed it. It's supposedly according to the marketing literature will not have those issues, but we'll see. So I've got some stuff, uh, flattening right now and tomorrow I'll take a look at it. 
Oh, very nice. That yeah. ought to be pretty good. And the other thing I have is uh, really big, actually. The Woodworkers Fighting Cancer event is underway. Started with a video on Monday. I worked my butt off all weekend to try and squeeze this thing in right in the middle of a guild build, which is what I call good planning and good timing on my part. Uh, but I worked all weekend and got this easel made, recorded, and the video out uh, early this morning. So, yeah, good. It little- sounds to me like you just don't like yourself and you're like, what would be the most difficult thing to do? Well, you know, to be fair, Nicole did do the plan and uh, set the schedule. So it may just be that she doesn't like me. Um, but yeah, so this, I didn't want to tell you. <laughs> yeah, this easel project is is done. It's really about a day and a half kind of project. If you have to mill the lumber yourself, maybe two days to get it done. So it goes together quickly, and it's a great charity. So if you guys, uh, I'm not going to get all all the details here. You can find them at woodworkersfightingcancer.com if you want to join in on this build and help out with the cause. And we're trying to get another ten thousand dollars this year. Um, I went back through and I started tabulating what we've done over the last three years, and we've contributed almost twenty five thousand uh, wow. dollars to, to cancer charities. I was like, that's not that's not a small number. No, that's not that's not chump change. That's like significant, especially for you know, kind of a uh, almost a, an organization that you really have to know about. I mean, this yeah. isn't like something that you you don't have marathons going on. You don't <laughs> right. have you know these big giant all over the nation kind of a thing. Well, you kind of do if you think about it. But sort of, yeah. But the NFL isn't like wearing our colors or anything. you know. For, not yet. <laughs> yeah, someday maybe. <laughs> so yeah, so we're really proud of that. Almost 25 grand to cancer charity. So it's good stuff. Woodworkersfightingcancer.com. You can check it all out. How about you, Matt? What are you up to? Uh, well, the big thing for me is uh, not a heck of a lot this past week, and I did a lot of editing for the show, a lot of catching up, and I still have a whole bunch more to go. I think if I had a whole army of interns, I would make a small dent in the things that I probably should be doing to make it a better show. But eh, what are you going to do? Um, maybe get some small children from uh, – third world country smuggled in. That might be the best way to go. Uh, But the big thing for me is the folks over at Steel City, uh, I was talking with them about the project I'm working on right now, the Aiden's Platform Bed, and I've got some really kind of some some curly figured wood going on with this. And I know for a fact that my current thickness planer is just going to eat this stuff up and I'm going to have to like say, no, that texture is for a reason. Leave it alone. Quit putting stuff on there. So I said, you know what would be really neat? Let's, let's do a head-to-head with one of those spiral head cutters with all the, the neat little blades that you can flip around if they, if they chip and stuff like that. And I just, from my own curiosity, I want to see what happens with it. I know we've had plenty of people always ask this question, you know, what, is it really worth it? What's the difference with it? So they were nice enough to send me one, and I don't know if I'm going to be nice enough to send it back to them when I get done. But I have it in the shop, and I'm getting ready to do a side-by-side comparison and throw some really, I don't know, I'm going to try and find the gnarliest figured wood that I can. Maybe, maybe Shannon, if you have some of those scraps out in your trash bin <laughs> there at work, perhaps you could maybe send me a couple that would be kind of fun to run through. And I've like, got you know, some uh, really evil wood that I could probably dig up and send to you. <laughs> yeah, I would just be really curious to see how much of a difference it makes. I mean, even if there's tear out, how minimal is that tear out compared to the traditional one? In fact, I even went out and bought new blades for my old thickness planer just so that I could do like a true side by side saying, you know, these both have the same amount of time on these blades. So it should be either really interesting or one of those things where the manufacturer says, um, can you take that video down? And how much is it going to cost us to get that video down? You know, what I found with my planer, I've got a spiral helical head on there. I haven't really even had to think about sharpening the blades. And I remember with my standard straight knife uh, planer that I used to have, 
it would just be this cycle. Like over time, I'd get to this point where, okay, things are getting a little bit more tedious to push through. The results aren't as good. Uh, it's taking a lot more effort to to get these uh, these boards to run through it. And the one that I have now, it's like I have to remind myself to pay attention and go, wait a minute, maybe, is it time to rotate those a little bit for a fresh edge? Because I, it's really not performing any different than it did when it was brand new. And it's now years into it. You know, so not only do they stay sharper longer, but when you do have to switch them, all you got to do is flip those little suckers around. But I got to remember just to even pay attention to it because it does not dull as fast as uh, the straight knives did for me. Well, I can tell you, considering how long they go at the the millwork at the lumberyard mm-hmm. before they change them, and when I think we're up at sixteen thousand linear feet a day right now. Wow, is what they're running through the mill, and. <clears throat> I looked at the, uh, the little maintenance clipboard thing up there and it shows when they were, you know, when the knives were changed, when they were rotated, all that stuff. And it's like, really? It was like two <laughs> weeks ago. And it's like, well, two weeks. Yeah, yeah but it's 16,000 feet a day. Yeah. You oh, know, that okay. really puts it in perspective. Now, you know, this may be slightly different carbide. You know, they're bigger, all that stuff and everything. But it's still, you know, we have, we as home woodworkers have moved into like the industrial world with these uh, carbide uh, replaceable cutter head yeah. things. They're just awesome. Yeah. And what are you yeah. doing? Maybe like at most one of us might do a dozen projects in a year and they're all small to medium. I haven't projects. done 16,000 I mean, linear feet yet. Yeah. I mean, it's probably going to be 10 more years before I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I actually have a feeling that I'll probably, you know, get so much better results from this just because of the fact that I'm so lazy when it comes to wanting to swap out those other blades in, and so I have a feeling that if it's something as simple as just flipping around and I already took the, the the hood off to look and see exactly how they're set up and everything that, yeah, I imagine I think I'm going to be getting, you know, a much better result, at least at that medium phase, mm-hmm. you know, then, then maybe when I actually head to my hand planes, I won't have to spend so much time trying to get that little groove down, that little raised part from where I never removed <laughs> the nick and the, the old blade. I don't, <laughs> I don't know about I don't you know guys, what I'm going to do. That's part of my routine. A- I used to have a piece of masking tape across my planer, and I mu- I made little like hash marks where oh, those yeah. nicks were in the blade. That's, I was just yep. thinking that. I used to do that too. <laughs> like, well, I need this to be a clean cut, so let's just slide it in between those two little tick marks so that I, I don't get that ridge on it. I do the yeah. same thing with the drum sander. I put a little tick mark to show me where like the little burnt on, caked on stuff is. Because <laughs> be like, awesome. you want to get every last bit out of it that, that you can. So. Oh yeah, there's there's our tips. How to be as lazy as possible so you don't have to change things around. <laughs> that, that's, that's being uh, conservative and efficient is what that yeah, is. It's not lazy. No, that's I'm sorry, I can only make this project out of an eighth inch wide material because I have so many nicks across my blades. I got this one little <laughs> spot right here. There you go. Nice. So sweet. That's what's going on with me though. Shannon, how about you? I'm not even gonna. I'm not gonna approach this one because I will get us in so much trouble. Yeah, I wrote something in here, and someone has has changed what I wrote about what I've <laughs> oh, been doing. Oh, come on, Shannon, show. just owe it, own it. I don't know yeah. who did that. That's weird. I've uh, really been focusing on some kind of short term projects. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, I'm coming out of a, a, a several big projects. All the lathes that I built, you know, um, and I just I've got some things kind of piling up that just needed to get done. Had several uh, shows that I had planned uh, for the Renaissance Woodworker that, you know, just ridiculous stuff that I could film in like five hours, like build and film in five hours, and I just need to do it. So mm-hmm. I actually had a really uh, kind of a good week last week. I, I cranked out five different projects. They will all show up on the Renaissance Woodworker, one of which was the tool tote that I posted last week. 
couple of little boxes for the Tom Ivino's last minute elf thing he's got going on and um, made a bunch of little tweaks here and there. Went back to my lathe and made some tweaks, um, changed, created a new pulley for it and uh, made a grinding station for it and actually sharpened all of my turning tools last night via treadle power, which was kind of fun. Sweet. But, yeah. And then uh, I just milled up my lumber for the woodworkers fighting cancer easel hey last oh, night. So nice. I'll be uh, hopefully getting to that in the next couple of days. And it looks, you know, I think we, I know we've talked about this before, but there's something very fun about just banging out real simple projects. Yep. You know, that, that easel came up at just the right time. I'm probably going to end up donating it to, you know, a local daycare center or something like that when mm-hmm. I'm done. Cause what am I going to use it for? Uh, although my wife is only five feet tall, so maybe it might maybe be it might be just right for her. <laughs> you just put it up on the bench. You can use that for your, your uh, ways you're doing demonstrations. Oh, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Very nice. So, um, you know, it, it's just it's kind of the perfect timing. It's something with just some real simple joinery, and you know, bang it together. Practice maybe a new finish on it or something like that. So, oh. yeah, that that type of stuff is really fun, and it's nice to just kind of crank stuff out and, and finish it. And for me with my own personal, um, shall we say problem is I have way too much lumber and I just, I need to build some more stuff and get it out of there. And I, and I think I've got some serious OCD about it too. Cause it's like, I don't like the fact that there's this enormous pile of lumber over there. I need to use it and need to build stuff with it. So and this is where everybody listening goes, wah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, poor <laughs> Shannon. I'd make well, a violin for him, but he's got all the lumber in his, in his piles. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is one of those things where we all save those like special, those unique pieces and they're kind of small. And you think, what am I going to do this for? And to me, that's like, that's Christmas time. Mm. You know, that's the perfect time to, to crank out. You know, that little box or turn something on the lathe and yeah. use up that that highly figured or just really interesting small piece of something that you knew you'd hang on to for one reason or another. So, totally. yeah, it's it's very cathartic. I'm cleaning out some of that stuff and turning it into projects. Well, you know, doing the easel myself in like a day and a half, it really made me think about how much we might tend to, I don't want to say we overcomplicate things, but ultimately I think, you know, the three of us probably I overcomplicate things. Okay. Okay. And we overcomplicate things. But I also think that most of us, most woodworkers have this aspiration to just be better and and to, to make things more involved. You want to get deeper into the craft. Um, But doing this, this one little project, I was like, Dude, if this is the, the the caliber of project I was doing all the time, I'd be doing a weekly show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's actually a fairly simple project that can be yeah. turned out in a weekend. Um, that it was it was just a lot of fun, and I totally agree with you. The concept of doing this short, confined project that isn't overcomplicated, doesn't have the the you know most advanced joinery in it, something like that was very refreshing to do. Well, it's also kind of like a self diagnostic. You can mm-hmm. go, hey. I've gotten better. <laughs> Look yeah. at me. I actually do know what I'm talking about, you know, because there's, don't get me wrong. You want to constantly be challenging yourself. You always want to kind of have that out there. But at the same time, you know, um, I think that's the difference with like the hobby woodworker who is building one-off type projects and the guy that maybe has a line of furniture and he rebuilds the same pieces over and over again. Yeah. Um, I could say that for Adirondack chairs and shaker tables, you know, I've built like, God knows how many Adirondack chairs and at least six of those little shaker side tables. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of get it down to a, a, a science and the challenge there becomes how do I make it more efficient? How do I, you know, do this faster, stronger, better, all that fun stuff. Right. But, 
you know, there is that element of, of being able to see, Hey, I've gotten a lot better at cutting tenants. Um, right. You know, and it's, so that, that's kind of fun. It's nice to step back and take stock at how far you've come, I guess. Yeah. Definitely. Like I, I know I've mentioned it before. Sometimes you do need to return to the basic basics to appreciate how far you've actually come. Yeah, that's true. Well, I brought it into the house and I was like, I showed Nicole and I'm like, it just kind of feels pretty cool to go, look, look what I can do in, in two days. Like this, this wasn't here two days ago and now it is. And my kid's playing with it. It just reminds me some of these little projects, especially the ones for your family and you satisfy a need that's there so they don't have to go buy something. Those actually, no matter how difficult or simple the project is, I think those are the most satisfying. And yeah. when you can knock it together that quickly, it's even more so. All right, let's move into what's new. It's where we share some links and uh, resources that we found or other people sent to us. And Matt, if you want to cover those. Sure, absolutely. This first one came in from Mark, and that's Mark with a K. Mm-hmm. Spells it the wrong know. way. I, I don't know if he pronounces Italy wrong either. But <laughs> anyways, he says, I found this while browsing Google Books. And it has issues from 1989 to 1999, and it's American Woodworker Magazine in Google Books. Now, I, I know, Mark, I think you posted this one mm-hmm. over uh, on Facebook, and this is this is pretty neat. I haven't had a chance to go through all of them, but uh, it's often fun to kind of flip through these back catalogs and see all of this great stuff that's in there. Yeah, and the responses that I got that were, were pretty interesting were about like the advertising in there and the prices <laughs> uh-huh. to see. It wasn't that long ago, but the prices uh, are pretty significant, significantly different than what we see today. Yeah, I was looking at those grizzly ones and I'm like, what? <laughs> no, and, and here's the thing, like old back issues of magazines are really, they're, they're kind of cool if you've never read them before, but I've got so many back issues of magazines that if I were to open them again, it'd be just like I didn't read it before, you know, uh, yes. because yeah, yeah, it's so long and you know what? I never touch them. So it's so, so funny because I, I, I know I've mentioned this before too. If anybody's li- listening all the way through, you might remember this one from just a few hundred episodes ago. Uh, but I always <laughs> talk about like, the fact that when I get a new magazine, I have a hard time sitting down and like reading it. Like I'll read it, but I won't digest it. Yeah. But I'll go back maybe like six months later, a year later or something, and suddenly I'm like, oh, this article is exactly what I've been looking for. Why didn't I read this earlier? It's the weirdest thing. I, don't, I can't explain that little glitch in my, the way my brain works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I've become so, a snob about it. Unless it's digital, I don't read it. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. Like, I, and I, I said this at the latest, whatever, we just got an email. Society of American Period Furniture Makers sent out an email like, um, you know, anytime there's elections for board members and you know, they're talking about the new website and everything. And I just replied, I was like, you know, you guys should really make the journal electric or electric. Oh, you should make that electronic. <laughs> That'll be shocking when you get it. <laughs> you should make it digital because I still haven't read the last three years and I hear they're really good. They're they're sitting there, you know, I've got them in print and one of these days I'll get around to them. But yeah, you just, I don't know. I don't take Not to drag it out too much, but I find myself now going through various publications and I see that there's a, a book that I have that I really enjoy and I turn to all the time. As soon as I see they have a digital version, there's that part of me that's like has that conflict between uh, vinyl and CD in the early days or in my case, <laughs> tape and CD. Like, do I do I get it for the third time? Now on CD. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, this is the one thing that I love about Fine Woodworking's uh, paid portion of their website. I don't have to really think about it. Like it, it pains me to think of how many magazines I have in a box somewhere that aren't cataloged in any way that I could very quickly go, you know what? I'm making a humidor. I wonder if there have been any humidor articles across you know this particular set that I have. But I can do that on Fine Woodworking's website very easily and find those articles and get the article right there. 
Um, so I wish all the magazines were a little bit better about how they present digital versions of the content uh, so that we can search them that way and don't have to worry about storing these things, even in a file format. Um, if mm-hmm. you've got these PDFs or something to be able to search them in an efficient way, uh, it's kind of a pain in the butt sometimes. So, yeah. Absolutely. Sweet. Well, hey, let's move on to this next one. We have one more, and this one came in from Alan, and he sent in a link to a veneer slash lumber dealer in the Atlanta area. Uh, he says they have over 1,200 species in stock. They have cartons of veneers that are still in original crates that are more than 30 years old sometimes. Uh, we'll have the links in there. He says the big thing that you need to do is when you head to the website, check out the two-page list of species under quote-unquote specimens and click the long do- download link. Uh, apparently, this link has a whole bunch of pictures of the specimens. So if you aren't sure what that wood looks like and you're trying to decide would it work in your project, yet again, another resource for you. Very cool. Lots of good veneer stuff we're finding now that we've been talking about it a little bit. You know, I was yeah. talking to my plywood buyer about this, and these guys, these veneer suppliers, and a lot of them specialize in creating custom laid-up um, plywood panels. Mm-hmm you know, pick your face veneer or whatever, they are the ultimate, like, just-in-time supplier. You know, there's no possible way that they can anticipate what their customers need. Yeah. So they just carry enormous inventories of face veneer. And it's it's sick. And I think what what's happened is, you know, a lot of these guys, economy being what it is, have fallen on hard times. So they've started to kind of open up their services to, you know, pun intended, Joe Woodworker. Um, Aha, and, uh, I yeah, see, see what I did there. If you didn't <laughs> go back and listen to a couple episodes, um, but it, it's crazy because there are places like this that have, you know, hundred years worth of material that mm-hmm. they've just been buying and stocking and, you know, and it's only been available to, you know, architects and large home builders and things like that. And now suddenly they've got to find another revenue source and there's this whole internet thing They've started to open it up and start cataloging this stuff. It's crazy. Um, So in other words, their pain is our gain. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, who is it? Uh, The other marketer guy, um, Patrick Edwards. Um, Although some people would say he is the marketer guy. Um, He like stumbled onto something like this. And there was one of these veneer suppliers that was actually going out of business. And he like bought their supply. Wow. And the dude's got like his own like warehouse like built into the back of his house that's just filled. It's like climate controlled and everything. And he's got veneer in there that's hundreds and hundreds of years old um, because he bought the entire uh, inventory at one time. Mm-mm-mm. Crazy. That's awesome. Crazy. All right. Moving on to the poll of the week from our good buddy, Tom Iovino at tomsworkbench.com. And he asked the question, would you cut a complex joint if no one could see it and an easier option existed? The answers are interesting because it's almost, I mean, at this point, it's kind of early in the poll. It looks pretty even across the board for all of the answers. They're all about 18, 20%-ish. So 18% say without hesitation. 25% say I might give it a shot. 21% say probably not unless I wanted to show how I did it. And 15% said only if there was no other option. And 19% said, no way, no how. So (laughs) I can't wait to see how this one pans out so that some of these start to venture, you know, sort of uh, get away from the pack a little bit to see what the majority think about that. But I'm I'm curious, do you guys, have you ever done it? Would you ever do it? And one of them is like the the hidden miter dovetail. Like that's where you've got the dovetail hiding literally under that miter joint. So from the outside, just looks like a miter. On the inside, you've got an actual dovetail joint. And there are reasons where you might functionally want to do something like that where it makes sense, like maybe a bracket foot. 
Um, but would you guys do that just for the heck of it? You know, I remember Frank Klaus at one of the first woodworking in America is kind of talking about that. And I, I can't remember what his exact response was, but no, (laughs) no. (laughs) Yeah. The only way I would do it is the option that's not in that poll is only if someone were watching. (laughs) There you go. Yes. You know, and they usually are. (laughs) And I actually think that was uh, Frank Klaus's response is only if somebody's watching like the client's there and you want to show off. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I've had, I've had a lot of requests to do that hidden miter dovetail joint and like a, you know, live demo for the hand tool school or something. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of on my list. I've cut one of them in my life and it came out all right, but I remember at the time thinking, why would I ever do this? Yeah, it's sort I of just, that just academic challenge, you know, yeah. and just to say that you've done it or that you can do it. It's like a, a good practice. Yeah. And shoot, I mean, by the time you do that, regular dovetails are a joke. <laughs> you know it's I mean? true. I just <laughs> cut that that rising dovetail joint that Roy Underhill's always talking about mm-hmm. on my last live session. I was like, you know, this was a lot of fun. I will never use this, but it was a good exercise. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I always tell people every miter joint I do is a dovetail miter joint. And good luck taking it apart. <laughs> there you go. I like that. You could just lie about it. They would never know. Exactly. All right, let's go into the kickback. We've got one here today from Craig. Uh, I'll go ahead and read this one. He says, I just got done listening to Wood Talk 152 when you mentioned a kickback about diamond plates needing a break-in period. I think I might have to call BS on that. Is that Bandsaw? Or I think so, yes. Bobsled? Yes. What's B? Okay. Bobsled. I think, it might, I think it might just Bob be... Bob Smith from New Wago. Bob Smith. I think it just might be a faulty product. I purchased the 6-inch DMT Extra Coarse Diamond Plate specifically for resetting the bevels on my steels. When I bought it, I was no, blah, blah. when I bought it, it was noticeably coarse. I used it to reset the bevels on two chisels, and after that, the plate was no longer extra coarse. I had bought the plate to my or bought the plate from the local woodcraft, and I guess he returned it, and he got another one as a replacement. And the guys at the store even said, "Yes, it's very different. This one's the new ones are coarse. This one is not." Well, shortly after having that one, I had the same problem. Uh, This time, I tried to contact DMT directly and asked them what was up. Unfortunately, got no reply. I ended up keeping it, and I just use it now to lap my water stones. But my 1000 grit uh, Norton does a better job for aggressive removal than this one does. And this was not the case right out of the box. Now, this might not be a big issue with the higher grits, but for the lower grits, it's definitely a problem. Buyer beware. Um, And I actually wrote Craig back just to give him my personal feedback on this. I've got one of the extra coarse stones and and the same thing happened to me. My assumption was that by the time that um, material on the surface wore down, that was the stuff that was left over from the manufacturing process. And by the time it wore down, I then had the true intended surface, which is a little bit smoother. Uh, So, and I still use it and it still works fine for me. So I don't know that it's a, a flaw in the product so much as that's just the surface that they're providing you with. Um, what do you guys think about that? I have this stone and I know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. What I discovered, see, here's the thing. And, the, and what really brought it up is when he said his 1000 grit Norton does a better job. A Norton water stone is, is friable, means it breaks apart. So it, every time it breaks apart, it's constantly exposing new grit. A diamond stone is not friable. It does not break up. So what you're relying upon is the extreme hardness of those abrasive particles not wearing down. But at the same time, you're creating swarf from the steel itself. So those stones will glaze relatively um, – not relatively easily, but what I found with the extra coarse one is I really had to wash that sucker when mm-hmm. I was done. Because if you let that swarf dry, it does not come off. 
And you kind of have to hit it with like a stiff bristled brush and, and work it to within an inch of its life to clean it off. So it's more than just kind of dunking in water or running under the faucet. You need to run it under the faucet and like scrub it with a brush in order to get that gunk out of there. And because it's so aggressive, it pulls a lot of steel off. I mean, he said it. He's using it to reset the bevels on his steel. I did the same thing for a while before I bought a, a grinding stone. And it stopped cutting aggressively like really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and my first thought was, oh, I glazed it. Um, so I went and cleaned it and it went back. So the only thing I'll tell him is he needs to give it a really, really good cleaning. And if it still doesn't work, he might want to think about some sort of solvent. Now, I research this more than me just pulling this out of my butt because I don't know what the binders are on those. Um, just dip it in acetone. It'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> maybe something fine. like mineral spirits would be enough. Um, or naphtha, rather. Um, I, I don't know. But I, that's probably what's going on. The fact that it's happened twice now. Yeah. Um, DMT, I don't know too much about the company, but they've been around a long time. And these things are not made. This isn't like... Um, you know, Lee Nielsen, where there's one person who's standing there assembling your inlay tool. Mm -hmm. This is made like in a computerized machined process to like incredible tolerances. I have to believe, well, I I could be full of it, but the QA in that factory is probably pretty good. Um, They generally have a pretty good reputation. So maybe it was a bad batch, you know, it could be, they all came out of the same machine. Maybe it's a bad batch, but I bet you that it's probably just gotten clogged up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, clean it. and I don't get too aggressive with mine. I just use one of those uh, Nagura, Nagura, Nagura stones, the little white right. stones. Uh, the same thing I use to clean off my regular um, stones. So that seems to work fairly well for me. But uh, look at it this I'll, way. If I'll you leave the stone out and it turns orange or turns rusty, there's an indication. <laughs> yeah. You've got a yeah, lot yeah, of metal in there. I was going to say that, you know, really, if you think about it, if it's an extra core stone, the, at the microscopic level, that surface is there's a lot of surface space in there for things to grab a hold of yeah, and get it's like an English muffin. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. There you go. That's a great analogy. Yeah, and it's going to fill up right away. So, yeah, you probably, since you're removing so much material, you probably do need to actually stop periodically and maybe clean out those little nooks and crannies that are going on there. So maybe that's, again, like we've already reiterated there, the uh, that that might be going on too, that it's filling up quite a bit. I do want to say, I also tried to reach out to the folks at DMT to ask them if maybe they might have a little insight. They haven't responded as of this recording. I did start it with do you know who I am? And you should answer me. So that might have automatically thrown me into the uh, recycle bin. But did you tell them that you thought DMT stood for dirty monkey turds? I thought it was uh, Dave Matthews tribute. Turnaround. <laughs> Dave Matthews tribute band. Yeah, nice. There you go. Yes. DMTs. <laughs> nice. All right, cool. Let's uh, move on to our voicemail. We've got one here from Traharn. Traharn. He says it in the beginning. I forget how he says it. Hey, Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Uh, my name is uh, Traharn, and I live up in... Uh, I got it. I got it. <laughs> the Yukon, Canada. Uh, we're way up north, and I just got a quick question about sharpening. Um, I would like to keep my water stones in my workshop. My workshop is in a one-car garage behind my house, and it's not heated at night, and it gets pretty cold. I'm wondering, has anyone... Do you guys know of anybody who has used any kind of alcohol in the water keep the sharpening stone in. I'm thinking of using methyl hydrate or some other type of alcohol and mixing it in so that the stones don't freeze because I'd like to be able to use them, you know, not bring them in the house every night. Anyway, um, please let me know. I listen to the show all the time. I'm going through the back episodes. I think I'm on episode 95. Anyway, I get a lot of enjoyment and uh, humor from you guys. So thanks very much and keep it up. And I look forward to, uh, to hearing my 
call on the ra- on the show. Thanks very much. Bye. All right. Humor, he means me. As well <laughs> yes. people know. Yes. And uh, Matt, you can attest to this. Uh, science is pretty sexy, right? Wouldn't you say? Oh, it's <laughs> the hottest thing I've ever seen. Those lab coats. Ooh. I think it's sexy. I tried to convince Nicole that it's sexy. She married me and I was, uh, you know, doing science work at the time. So, you know, I think it's sexy. So I'm going to play a little sexy music while I answer this question. Oh, please do. This is going to be awesome. Bear with me, guys. Here we go. All right. So I looked it up online. And the average overnight low in Yukon, Canada is about minus 22 degrees Celsius. Now, in order to lower the freezing point of water to minus 22, you need to add approximately 40% alcohol by volume. And uh, there's some toxicity concerns with methyl hydrate, also known as methanol. So, all right, let me cut this music. That's terrible. Oh, my gosh. You had me add by volume and toxicity. I <laughs> I hope Sam's ready for tonight since this show's over with. <laughs> it's on. It's 6.023 times 10 to the 23rd. What? Wait, hold on. Yes. It's like it's on like the periodic table. Avogadro's number, baby. All right, so here's the thing. Uh, I did look it up. Yukon, Canada, the average overnight low that or the, the lowest it's going to get in wintertime is about minus 22 for him. So what we need to do is figure out what volume of alcohol you'd have to add to the water to even get it to the point that it won't freeze, you know, to, to sort of hit his goal here. Uh, so what I found, and this is just up to this chart that I found, and hopefully it's correct, is you need about 40% by volume of alcohol in that mixture in order to protect it so that it doesn't freeze. Uh, I think that brings it to like minus 23 then becomes the freezing point. So it's still close. So you need at least 40%. Now here's the problem. That's a lot of alcohol. And this is something Mm -hmm. that, like, unless you want to sharpen with gloves on, which you might because it's probably flipping cold in your your (laughs) workspace there. Um, But, yeah, ultimately, you're going to want to protect your hands from this. So you can think about the different types of antifreeze-type materials that you could work work with. And uh, one of them, so instead of methanol, let's think about ethanol. Um, Now, if you have denatured alcohol, that's primarily ethanol, but there still are other things added to it so that it is not, um, you know, drinkable. So it still has toxicity that you need to be concerned with. Um, you also might consider like propylene glycol, uh, and that's also something at 40% that would make it a little bit safer. But I mean, it's going down a path here that I don't know that I'm comfortable even recommending because it, well, yes, it's what's possible. the volatility of these substances too. Like how often are you going to have to replace that in your solution? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're going to have evaporation that's going to change things and, and what, is the effect on alcohol or any of these other solutions on the stones themselves? I don't. I was running. I don't know. I mean, there are things yeah. that you could put the expose these stones to that will start to sort of disintegrate the binder, and then you're left with you know a stone that's falling apart. So there's a lot of things that have me concerned. I'd hate to see this guy working with um, you know something that's like 50 percent alcohol all the time. You know, it just seems like just keep a small bath, and yeah, it sucks, but you just got to bring it inside uh, and keep that temperature up. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's what I'm thinking. It just it, just a couple of stones, you know, you can bring them in and out without any problem. Sure, it's nice to have them sitting there waiting for you, but I don't know. I I, I really think that we're kind of we're kind of pushing the pushing the limits here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I guess it can be done. I just don't know that. I mean, maybe yeah, I'd be concerned like you'd be having using a lot of like antifreeze, and suddenly the neighbors start talking. They're like, I don't know what's going on in there, but. <laughs> <laughs> and if you if anyone lives in a very cold climate and you've got a solution for this, no pun intended, solution, get it? Yes, sir, uh, yeah, there was a there was a pun intended for that. If you have to point out the pun, it's not very funny. Um, all right, so b- 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 email. Let's do that. 
I got a question here from Tyler. He says, I'm planning on starting my first project involving dovetails in the near future, and I was hoping you guys could help me decide if I should hand cut them or machine cut them. As of right now, I don't have a dovetail saw or a dovetail jig for my router, and I'd love to make an informed decision as to which one I should buy. I'd love to hear Mark present the pro machine cut side and Shannon represent the pro hand cut argument and Matt just moderate and provide riveting color commentary. All right, well, here we go, Tyler. We're getting ready to cue, cue this up right now. Mark on the side there with his machines. Vroom, vroom. <laughs> vroom, vroom. That should vroom, be my vroom. tagline for my show. Vroom, and vroom. Shannon, shh, shh. That's is good. It, is that someone snoring? Is that what that was? All right. Not me anymore with that CPAP machine, just that Sean. All right, well, here's the problem, and the reason I put this in here is I don't know that I could fully represent the power <laughs> machine cut side in the way that you're hoping, Tyler, because I think in the beginning, I think it's great for someone to grab some chisels and a saw and make a couple of dovetails by hand. It's an incredibly important lesson in sawing, cutting to a line and chiseling to a line. So I love my router jig, but it really is something that only comes out when I've got a bunch of dovetails to make. So maybe like a whole bank of drawers uh, or I'm doing dovetail cabinets or, or dovetail drawers in my shop or something like that. And I just need to knock them out. That's the times that I typically will depend on the machine cut dovetails in the first place. Um, so for me, I mean, would either of you recommend that someone just goes right to the dovetail jig uh, as a, as a beginner? Or do you think it's good as a woodworker to, to go with that saw and chisel initially? Mm. You do know, I even have to answer that? <laughs> Shannon, you don't. You're, <laughs> well, let's, let's do this. I, I will say that if you take the time to purchase a, a, a decent dovetail jig, I would recommend going that route just because of the fact that um, well, you, you can do – you can do quite a bit with it. You'll get really good results. You won't have that frustration. Although I'm having a hard time going with this debate because I do everything by hand now because I had such a crappy chick. Yeah, um, that could be an issue. I, I guess too. it really depends on your on your comfort. How much are you willing to? Both of them have a bit of a, a learning curve, especially depending on which jig you go with. I know a lot of people will say you buy the right one and it's pretty much usable right out of the box, which I have a hard time believing. But <laughs> sure, okay, we'll, we'll play that game. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, well, I, I can't say for sure. I, I guess if we knew more of Tyler's background. Yeah, that's you know. true too. I mean, most of the time when this question comes up, it's typically someone who already has some version of a dovetail jig in their shop right. and they're looking to you know delve into the hand cut world. Here's a situation that's a little different. He doesn't have either, but apparently he's been doing his research and listening to podcasts and whatnot. So he has this awareness that both of these options are out there and hasn't made that purchase yet. And along the lines of what you're saying there, Matt, if he does purchase a dovetail jig i do recommend he gets a good one and that's yes. hundreds that's hundreds of dollars later i was gonna say you might actually save money going the hand tool route here uh, not, I mean, yeah, you don't yeah, have definitely. to buy you know a 200 dollars dovetail saw exactly um yeah. <clears throat> i know many people who used what is the veritas saw these days like 69 dollars or something uh, um i, I, I want to say well i will look it up and so you keep talking about it and we'll i know many that, people so. who've used that for a long time i've cut you know, many a dovetail with it myself. Um, you know, the, there are options. There's even cheaper ones. You can go the Japanese saw route, mm-hmm. buy yourself a dozuki for like $20. Um, and, and there's certainly a lot of people who go that route. Now, you know, if he doesn't have chisels or anything like that, you know, you're, you're adding in chisels to that. But, but even you need then, those anyway. I mean, you got to right. have those to begin with. Right. So the way I see it, the tools and certainly the skills that he would gain by cutting it by hand will be much more useful down the road 
than the skill of learning to use that dovetail jig. Yeah. Right. It, it comes in at $69, as you had mentioned. You, hey, look you at know that. You, I must have looked at that recently. Right. I'm never right on numbers <laughs> like that. Cool. Well, you know, and another thing going with the, the dovetail saw itself, it's something that you. Well, you should always practice with your tools anyways, and you can practice all sorts of, you know, on scraps and everything else to get it. And it doesn't really take that long. Once you get a no. feel for it, once you can cut to a, you know, a nice straight line, you can pretty much do your dovetails. There's, there's no, yeah. no major concern with it whatsoever. I mean, that was my big thing is going down and just, just cutting 90 degree lines, basically, uh, you know, uh, down, down the board. And once I was able to kind of strike that line. Boom, I was golden. Yeah, and you know what? There's about a thousand videos online that you could watch for how to do this. <laughs> and they all kind of show you Absolutely. the same thing. So Exactly. There's no shortage in education on learning uh, dovetail. So. so, Tyler, if you're looking for permission, just do it. Do it, man. Do it. All right, Shannon. Yes, sir. Well, we had a question from Wade who said, I'm recently working on a three-quarter inch thick face frame with mortise and tenon joints. The upper rail had a very narrow tenon, about one and a quarter inches by five sixteenths. I had a difficult time chopping the mortise for this by hand. There just wasn't enough room to lever out the chips with my mortise chisel. So I had to resort to drilling out the core and paring the sides to fit. Any advice on chopping a small mortise with just the chisel? Suck it up and <laughs> drill it out to start? Hand tool only solutions, please. Well, what I'm curious with is, isn't a drill a hand tool? Um, uh, even the I powered mean, one. I mean, I hold it in my hand and use it in such a yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, whether it's powered or not, it's a hand tool. So, um, I mean, really, the, the the most efficient way to do this is with a drill. Whether you're using an egg beater drill, a bracing bit, or cordless, you know, Ryobi or whatever, um, I think that's probably the best way to do it. But you can do it with just a chisel. Um, what did I mention those uh, shaker side tables earlier? The the drawer side there where that lower rail intersects the, the legs, that's a you know three-quarter inch by, what, one-and-a-half-inch wide rail that goes into those legs, and you've got to put a, a tenon in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do a single tenon, you're talking about like you know maybe a half-inch wide, maybe five-inch wide or thick tenon that's you know maybe an inch wide. So it's a very small mortise. One of them I made, I did that little twin mortise and tenon thing where you've got the two – tenon side by side Mm -hmm. and that was like almost a half inch square tenon um it can be done while the easiest way to to, is just drill it out um you can just use a chisel and it becomes less about levering out the chips and more of working towards the center so you want to take a cut with a bevel towards the center of the mortise kind of maybe a third of the way into the center of the mortise. You make a cut with the bevel facing the center, then flip it around and make another cut with a bevel facing the center until you extract like a little V out of the middle. And then you just keep repeating that. Um, And what happens is you're not really levering anything out. You're just cutting towards the void in the center and the chisels will just, or the chisels, the chips will just kind of pop out. Now, what you may end up doing is getting something like a scratch-all or, you know, heck, a, a pencil or something to kind of go in there and kind of pick the, the chips out that get stuck in the bottom. Um, it just – it's a little bit slower because you're basically taking a, a, a lighter bite with each chisel chop, if you will. Cool. That makes sense to you guys? It sure does, Shannon. Yeah. There you go. Definitely. Um, Sweet. Long well, run, hey. use a drill. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. When in doubt, drill it out. 
Oh, I like All that. All right, well, hey, this next question comes in from Kenji, and he says, have you guys seen Steel City's new blue line? I did. I saw it was at AWFS. I think I was looking at the YouTube uh, videos, but I see you have more to this question, so let me go on. Uh, if I plan on cutting at most a 16-quarter rock maple stock, would a half-horsepower be enough power, or will I need the one-horsepower version? At $260 for a bandsaw, it is extremely attractive. Thanks for your opinion. Uh, so anyway, so... When it comes down to it, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people, again, are falling into the more power means that you can just do amazing things. I'm going to go back to my old bandsaw that I have, which I had was a 14 inch and it was like one third horsepower, maybe half horsepower, something like that. And I had no problem ripping through, say, like ash. Um, I don't think it was like 16 quarters. Well, actually, 16 quarters, that's four inches. So, yeah, there was a few times that I resawed the uh, uh, ash on that particular uh, bandsaw. Mm. For me, the main thing is it still comes down to, and I keep saying this over and over, it's it's feed rate and a nice sharp blade. And I guarantee that you can you can, you can tackle this. Now, the big question for me is, is this the type of material you're going to be working with on a regular basis? If that's the case, then I might suggest maybe going up to the larger horsepower simply because if you're going to be using this type of material all the time, you're really going to probably ta- start taxing that motor to a large degree. At least that's what I keep thinking as, as I think about this situation. So in that case, I probably would maybe suggest going up to the one horsepower version. But overall, I just think if you take the time to adjust that feed rate so that you can you know let the machine do the work, let the blade do the work. Have the right type of blade on this. I mean, you definitely don't want a super fine blade on. You want to have one that's going to be able to remove the material so it won't, again, start stressing out the motor. Make sure your um, your guide blocks are all set up and and kind of go from there. So, uh, yes, I think you could easily handle uh, the half horsepower with that type of material. You know, the funny thing is I've, I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, you don't really need a whole lot of horsepower because you have a, a good quality blade that's nice and sharp. And like you said, the feed rate, the calibration, if it's all there, you should be able to cut just about anything on any bandsaw. The problem right. is my blade is never perfectly sharp. And <laughs> no, my, it's not. <laughs> my calibration is never perfect because, I mean, maybe it was for a while, but it's not now. And I tend to be just like, well, I just got to make this cut and get through this. And if it's slightly off, I'll fix it later. And uh, and that's always the situation. So for me, I need a little more than a half horse. <laughs> you know? And it's really because of my laziness and, and lack of willingness to change the blade more as much as I should. Um, but I think, yeah, I think for someone who actually does want to uh, put that a little bit of extra effort and attention into it, you can get quite a bit done with that half horsepower. Well, right, I think definitely. it comes down to the, the tooth geometry more than anything else. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. sharpness is nice, but... You know, the thicker the stock, the bigger the gullets you need. You know, mm-hmm. the the more aggressive, <clears throat> not so much aggressive, but the 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 bigger the tooth, really, and therefore the bigger the um the gullet. To, to give it, I had a three quarter inch or three quarter inch three quarter horse bandsaw for years, and you know, I did my whole um, Rubo workbench with that. So mm-hmm. I was cutting four inch thick stock. Through that, I was cutting five inch thick stock for the legs all the time. Look at it this way, I use a frame saw that works off one sixteenth horsepower <laughs> and I can cut through this stuff. It's just a matter of choosing the geometry of the tooth, you know, right. using a three points per inch saw in, in my or blade in my frame saw, I can resaw some crazy stock at one sixteenth horsepower. By the right. way, that's, it, that's human 
horsepower essentially is one sixteenth horsepower. Did you guys see the um, the Dodge commercial for Anchorman <laughs> two with the horse? Yes, He's poking yes. fun at the poor horse. Uh, speaking of that horsepower, awesome. that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think it just comes down to the the realization and and it, that certain size machines are going to have limitations and being willing to work with those limitations or simply just save up and go for the larger one if mm-hmm. if you don't want to work with the limitations. But definitely. All right, so I'm confused by what's in the show notes here next. So, uh, I think this is because Matt deleted one of my questions, so I just <laughs> dropped it in there, and I think I put it in the wrong order. So, oh, okay. Um, Actually, Shannon, I wanted to let you know that we no longer let, let you have two questions. <laughs> you we only get one. a vote behind you. You take too long to answer, so you I've only been get devoted. one. <laughs> well, I got a, a question from Matthew, and it was a little similar to a question we got very recently from. Uh, Kenji, who I think is trying to win an award for most questions asked of the Wood Talk. I'm glad you said that. He's our new Roberto. Kenji is the new Roberto. (laughs) Roberto, you better start asking questions, man, because your title is about to be threatened. Get on it. Anyway, Matthew said, I'd like to start cutting dovetails by hand, and I'm looking at a Lee Nielsen dovetail saw. The only problem is that there are three types. While each one lists its advantage, they're not really compared to one another in terms of what sort of work or woodworker would benefit from a particular type. Can you fill me in on the difference between regular progressive pitch and tapered models? Can you make a suggestion as to which one is best? And this ties a little into Kenji's question because he went to a hand tool, uh, Lee Nielsen hand tool event and was playing with one of their saws and was like so shocked at how well it outperformed his Veritas saw that he was just like, this is crazy. I'm going to ditch my Veritas saw and go with a Lee Nielsen saw. And it just, it's reminded me of a, the value of choosing your hand tool when you've had a chance to use it. Um, so I can, I can explain the differences of Lee Nielsen saws and you could buy one and still end up maybe not liking it. So I realize it's easier said than done because you can't just go and pick these things up, but you know, Lee Nielsen hand tool events, they're, they're getting around. Um, so unless you live in the Yukon, um, you might have one somewhat close. And if it's somewhat close, you might think about driving um, or go to woodworking in America or borrow somebody who has one or something like that. There is a lot to be said because there's a lot of different variables from the hang angle to the tooth geometry to the handle itself that will determine how well that saw cuts in your hand. So, And I think that's one of the things that we seem to be getting away from with hand tools. There's a lot of great makers out there that have a lot of different options, and you may pick it up and go, man, this thing sucks, because it just doesn't work for your particular body mechanics. And the more boutique makers we get, the more highly refined these tools become, the more they may not work at all for you because you're left-handed and walk with a limp. You know, so it, it is something to keep in mind. Ideally, when it comes to Veritas and Lee Nielsen, they're making their tools for the wider audience. So they're not as highly tuned to say Bad Axe or uh, Superior or um, Blackburn Toolworks or any of these guys that um, making uh, really, really boutique tools. So that being said, uh, regular progressive pitch and tapered models. Um, I had a progressive pitch Lee Nielsen saw for many, many years, liked it a lot, wouldn't recommend buying it again. Um, Progressive pitch is a gimmick, Um, and I'm going to anger people by saying that, but it becomes a little bit harder to sharpen because suddenly you're you're changing your gullet size and you have to change files midway through sharpening, which – you know, sharpen a dovetail saw enough times, your eyes start to hurt because those teeth are so small. And if you have to pay attention to when I'm supposed to switch files, you're going to mess it up. So that becomes an issue. Um, 
the progressive pitch is meant to make the saw easier to start by putting smaller teeth out at the toe. You can start really any saw, regardless of tooth size, by taking the weight off the toe of the saw. Um, and I've, I've, I've proven this in, in a live event I did where I started a five-point per inch rip saw on Ipe, which is harder than granite. It's possible just by removing the weight from the toe of the saw. So it becomes technique. So now you have to ask yourself, do I really need progressive pitch out on the front? Um, so the regular saw, to me, just a constant, whatever the, the, the PPI is, I think it's 15. They offer a couple different ones, but we'll just say 15 points per inch, constant from heel to toe. It ends up being easier to sharpen. You don't get any kind of transition point when you're sawing from fine tooth to, to uh, coarser tooth. The tapered model means that there is less saw plate below the back at the toe than there is at the heel of the plate. And the idea is, is now the, if you've ever been cutting a joint and you get to your line on one side and realize you blew past your baseline on the backside, that's what the tapered model does. It prevents that from happening. Um, you know, these, a lot of the, the uh, vintage saws have this function. It's something that's starting to come back into the saw vernacular, if you will, these days. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's probably a good idea. Um, I think, uh, you know, I don't know too much about the specs of that. The one thing I would urge a new dovetailer to avoid is the thin plate that Lee Nielsen offers. I think you're going to be more prone to tweaking that blade with a really thin plate than you will with the standard thickness plate. And since Lee Nielsen doesn't... um, I don't know if they epoxy um, or they groove their backs. They don't have a, a friction fit bent back like somebody like um, Bad Axe Toolworks does. It's really hard to correct when you kink that saw plate. So um, me, I would just go with a regular plain old dovetail saw um, in the thicker plate and go from there. Wonderful. That was a lot, so, I know. All right. I got a question here from... Who is it? I'm a little lost here. Okay, Jim, Jim, Jim. I've recently encountered a problem while ripping some teak to where I've noticed some slipping of my blade. I've got a brand new 10 root blade on the saw. uh, And Mark, I follow the same guidelines as you do as far as hand tightening my arbor nut and then giving one good tap on the wrench so that I don't over tighten anything. Uh, What I want to know is if my problem would be solved by purchasing a pair of five by quarter inch arbor washers from Lee Valley to grab and stiffen the blade more, or is my saw just underpowered at one and a half horsepower? Can I tell my wife that in your professional opinion, I need a bigger saw? Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure if the larger cabinet saws come with larger washers. So have you guys ever tried the larger washers yourself or uh, have you any tricks for slipping blades? I don't work much with softwood, so this is a problem I need to resurrect i guess he meant correct or resolve <laughs> resolve and correct put together our resurrect <laughs> so. that he just really likes the problem and he wants to keep re- redoing it over and over <laughs> yeah um all right so the blade slipping now here's the thing i i know you went back and forth a little bit with him matt so maybe you could provide some insight um is the blade itself slipping on the arbor or is this a gear or belt slippage issue uh, oh, i'm gonna have to go back to the emails real quick but it, it, if I remember correctly, it's it's slipping on the arbor itself. Okay, so... That's so, why I feel like we've answered this question. That's right, because there was a whole yeah, email thread. This went, And I just don't remember the details, but... Um, all right, so if this happens, you know, number one, I'm going to be looking at the arbor flange or the nut and just making sure that everything 
is the way it's supposed to be. Because if maybe you're not getting full contact uh, around the the perimeter of that that particular um, the the one that comes with the saw. I don't know if you call it a flange or whatever. Um, but if it doesn't make good contact, you're gonna have an issue. So check that. And the thing he's suggesting, the arbor washers, that actually doesn't sound like a bad idea because that's something that's gonna be machined flat. And if you could fit it on there, if there's room on your arbor for that and you tighten it up, that may provide that extra bit of grip that he isn't getting for whatever reason. Um, so that might be a quick fix rather than trying to you know, maybe flatten the surface of the arbor flange or the nut itself to make sure it's gripping perfectly all around the the, the perimeter of it. Um, so I would, that that's actually not a bad idea. I don't know that you necessarily need a bigger saw, but what you might look into is make sure you get a thin curve blade on there. He didn't say what which particular Tenru blade he's got, but if you've got a full curve blade, that may be a little bit more work than your one and a half horsepower saw wants to do, especially on something like Teak. Um, so, so those are if the, the blade is slipping on the arbor. Um, right, and that, for sure, I just went back in and checked, and he said, yes, my blade is actually slipping on the arbor when running go. grip cuts. Okay, so, so I think he's actually on the right track with the arbor washers. I'd give that a shot. If you still have an issue, you may even contact the manufacturer and just, you know, get the, have them think about the situation a little bit. Uh, maybe you just need a new arbor nut sent to you, something that might be flatter. Maybe the surface just isn't flat enough. Um, but that's what I would suggest. This this kind of thing always makes me nervous, and giving advice on it makes me a little bit nervous because it's obvious, you know, safety issues to be concerned about. Um, Absolutely. But I definitely think the stiffeners being milled nice and flat should do a really good job. Now, on my saw, I've got that little flange washer type deal, and then the nut comes in behind it. All right, and as long as that thing is nice and flat and makes good contact, and it's about I don't know maybe three inches in diameter. So it covers a good portion of the blade. That's essentially what the blade stiffener that he's talking about would do. It would just spread out that surface area and hopefully grip the blade a little bit better. Right. Sweet. Maybe this is obvious, but did he clean all the crap off that brand new blade? <laughs> I hope so. All the oil and all the, I remember when I got my, um, my forest woodworker two blade, it was like dunked in, in whatever it is, cosmoline or whatever that stuff is. Uh, that's called and schmutz. Yeah, yeah that's the technical term. And it had all that wax, <laughs> like they dipped in the teeth to protect the carbide, and I had to peel all that stuff off. And there was yeah. just so much gunk all over the thing. I had to clean it thoroughly before I could actually put it in mm-hmm. in my saw. So just yeah, maybe that's that's like you know, I is hope, your computer plugged in? <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that's not the case, but definitely good to mention that. Right. Sweet. Well, hey, we ready to move on to this last question here? Do it. it all right. This one came in from Steve, and Steve was he says, I was reading the instruction for Ron Hawk's new knife kits, and the procedure to attach handles to the tang of the blade involves using epoxy. Now, Ron states to stay away from the five-minute epoxies. Why? I know you've talked about epoxy on the podcast before, but can't remember if you addressed the different qualities of long-set epoxies versus five-minute epoxy. It would be great if you could give us some guidelines in the use of the different formulas of epoxy. Okay, so what I did was I, I reached out to Ron because Ron's a buddy. And actually, you know what, folks, if you actually tried to contact Ron, I can almost guarantee in most situations he would co- contact you back and just kind of fill it, all the stuff in for you. So, you know, th- that's one of the Obviously great things. Fascinating about the Matt, too. <laughs> yeah. What? What? <laughs> so anyways, I'm going to ignore that, Shannon. He has a Matt filter and folder <laughs> in his email. <laughs> so he knows. 
Yeah, he pretty much does, actually. I noticed, I, I saw the, the, the feedback on this one. Mm-hmm. But he says, anyway, so I asked Ron about this, and he was saying that he discourages the use of five-minute epoxy mainly because if you're not proficient at putting handles on knives, things can go wonky. And if they do it with a five-minute epoxy, you pretty much have a disaster on your hands just waiting to happen. So he, uh, Ron feels that the slow set, Two-part epoxies not only give you almost an hour to kind of dink around until everything goes together properly, but he feels that they're stronger in the long run as well. So, in other words, please don't don't be in a hurry. Enjoy the process, and you're going to make yourself a really beautiful blade in the in the end. So that that's Ron's reason for doing the five minute, not doing the five minute epoxy, staying far away from the five minute epoxy. Mm-hmm. And to me, that makes sense. I mean, a lot of times, unless you have some sort of setup where you know for sure the, how this thing is going to go together. At any time I've tried something for the first time or, or I, I'm kind of just really making sure that things have to be lined up just the right way, that always seems to be when they never do. And so it'd be nice to have that little wiggle room in there. Unfortunately, my uh, experience so far with epoxy has pretty much been like that five minute stuff that I like get from the home center and it mm-hmm. comes to, like a syringe with like two parts and then I put it together and then I can't get my fingers apart later on or something. <laughs> so uh, Shannon, Shannon, do you have any, any epoxy experience? But I know Mark, you do. Well, I do know that uh, when I've built fly rods before, um, they say the same thing, stay away from the quick set stuff because it ends up, it's almost like it's not as pure um, whether there's, if there's air bubbles or anything in the mix, they don't have time to, to like rise out of the solution mm. and you end up with a poor finish, you know, cause when you're making a fly rod, that epoxy is the finish coat to cover up your threads and everything. So you specifically want a slow dry to give it time to kind of, I don't know, settle. <laughs> it's, it seems like just about anything that has a curing process cures better if it is able to do it slowly. Yeah, right. I mean, almost across the board, you hear that for things that cure. So um, it seems but to make it sense. It's funny because I was actually, I meant to go to you, Mark, but for some reason, Shannon came out because I guess I'm thinking about Shannon right now. <laughs> you do that in the middle of the show sometimes. <laughs> I've seen it. makes me very uncomfortable. Daydreaming about Shannon and his hand tools. Exactly. I've got the wood magazine <laughs> of him right here with that great picture. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I haven't used a five-minute epoxy in forever. I've got uh, the West Systems epoxy that I use, for, and, and I do have a fast-drying um, activator, basically. So you've got the uh, the slow set and the long set, and, and I use them both, but even, even the fast set stuff... Um, it still seems to give me more working time than your average five-minute epoxy. But for me, the big thing and the reason why I like using it so much, and pardon the airplanes, they are they're on a mission today. They want to get they want to let you know what they think about the epoxy also. <laughs> yeah. Um, the reason I do it is because they're they're much looser, you know, so you could pour them and, and it's great for filling knots and cracks and things like that and and really spreading it over a surface. The five minute epoxy stuff that you get from the, the big box store, it's very gooey, you know, it's very hard to spread. So yeah. if on a small little thing that you're putting together, fine. But anything on a an, any larger of a scale and if you want to spread it around, it's just too thick to do that. So I, I don't you know, that's why I don't even touch the stuff anymore. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Okay. iTunes reviews. If you want to leave us a review in iTunes, you could do that. Just look us up in the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews, and you can ask Matt how much he charges for an early Christmas goose. Oh, well, right now it's, uh, it goes at market rate, so it'll vary <laughs> from day to day. Just email me and I'll let you know. Sweet. All right. We want to thank what, what's chiz? What chiz? 
who says, great show. I'm so show. glad that you get to pronounce all these things. <laughs> Which is, uh, he says, great show, he or she, the only podcast I listen to the day that it comes out. Great advice, good humor, and wide-ranging woodworking advice. The chemistry between the hosts is amazing. I can't believe they've almost never done this face-to-face. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Sound like right. gonna... So it was really uncomfortable when we were in the hotel room actually doing it face to face. That was probably like one of the worst moments ever. No that, offense, guys. That was a little bit weird. Well, Matt winking at me, have, having to like maintain eye contact with Shannon while he's talking. It was all very weird. It definitely was. It had nothing to do with the MWA guys coming in and attacking us. That's true. All right. Remember, today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com. And uh, not audible. I took that out of there, but someone someone put everything back in that I removed. So, <laughs> who is that? That that must be an intern that we have going on right I now. I don't know. Um, and also, if you want to help out the show with a, a one-time donation or a small recurring donation, you could do that. Just go to woodtalkshow.com and look for the links over in the left-hand side. And we always appreciate it when folks help us out in that way. Uh, and Matt, how about you give them the contact info, and we'll get out of here. All right, folks. Hey, do you have a comment, a question, or a topic suggestion that maybe I could lose in the show notes also? We would love to have that happen. You have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. Hey, and if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show, hey, check over there at woodtalkshow.com. I don't know why I keep saying hey. It just sounds really fun right now. Hey, hey why not? Hey. Hey, why not? Let's just, just do it. Gets people's attention. Hey, how you doing? Oh, doing good. How about you? Great. Not too bad. I'm finally finishing up this show. I'm going to go eat after a little bit. Mm, me too. Sounds good. All right. Hey, well, sounds good. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See you. See bye. You. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.